thought this afternoon we would talk about the first few verses of Luke 17. And uh, try to get some encouragement from those verses as we walk towards the kingdom today. If you're anything like me, you sometimes feel as if you're not making enough progress. You feel okay for a while, but then something happens to reveal that dark part of yourself that you thought you had left behind, that you thought you'd mastered. Perhaps you're in a bad mood and an annoying person pushes in front of you. Or you have to deal with some government bureaucrat who hates their job and you feel that negative emotion welling up inside you and you say something you didn't mean to say. Perhaps it even might have been true, but you realise you've lost control and it brings you back to square one somehow. Perhaps you're in a relationship and you find yourself endlessly squabbling over small details, biting at each other. Perhaps you're an impatient driver, or you gossip at work, or find yourself focusing on money and what it can get you, or perhaps you're addicted to rubbish on the television or trashy magazines. Maybe you use bad language. You tell white lies or a hundred other things that you know come from that part of you inside that you don't respect and that you want to move on from. It's all fine when you're by yourself at home, when you can be in control. But when you have to interact with the outside world, then you get glimpses of the person that you really are, the person you don't want to be. Some people use the expression, the mask slips. But it's not really that at all, is it? We're not all going around with masks, trying to hide the real us. Maybe when we were younger, but now we try to be the real us. It's just that there's also a more real us somehow, that when pushed, bubbles up from somewhere shadowy inside. Those of us who live alone and have quiet, simple lives, surrounded by the four non-threatening walls of our homes... (coughs) Well, we could convince ourselves we're doing everything God wants. We're actually okay in his sight, and we might be. But how do we know unless we're pushed? The point is that life as a Christian can be a cycle of self-disappointment, and therefore a draining experience, as we're all confronted daily with the reality of who we really are, compared to who we want to be, who we should be, who God wants us to be. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 7, I'm all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. So, this is where we begin to connect with Luke 17. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. 
And I don't know about you, but I immediately felt saddened and convicted by this verse when I read it earlier. Remembering mistakes I have made. Times where I tried to do the right thing, but didn't. And it all went wrong. Times when I knew I wasn't doing the right thing, but couldn't seem to stop. Times when I was too scared to say anything. And in the end, I sinned and I helped others to sin. I should have known better. And that warning from Jesus can feel very scary indeed. So since Jesus expects such high standards of us and there was punishment waiting for those who hurt others and cause them to sin, and yet we also read in the scriptures that we fail all the time, even though we don't want to, and that we can't seem to get it right even if we try. What hope do we really have? This is where the astute among you will have noticed I missed some paragraphs out when I quoted Romans 7. For Paul says, He doesn't really understand himself. He wants to do what's right, but he doesn't do it. Instead, he does what he hates. But he goes on to say, But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. And Paul isn't blaming someone else here. He's drawing a line between the spiritual part of him that agrees with the good and his human nature that's still there and loves to do what's wrong. In other words, brothers and sisters, we all fall short of the glory of God. But there's more to the story, and it's the good part. Paul goes on, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that's at war with my mind, and this power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. If God were just observing us in order to count up our failures, trying to find our guilt, so that he could give us what we deserve to have, then we should have given up being Christian long ago. We stand no chance. But he isn't doing that. We have a God that offers us a door that gets us from where we are to where he is. He who chose us while we were still sinners, and he who even now that we still sin, works with us, disciplining us because he loves us, offering us forgiveness on demand if we ask wholeheartedly. He designed and provided a door through which we can enter, and sent someone ahead of us to give us confidence. When we knock, it's God himself that opens the door to new life to eternal youth, in fact, in a house where righteousness dwells, where God himself lives. And it's not that we just go to, get, go to live there. He makes us part of himself in a way that we can't understand yet. We will live in harmony with him and with each other and will be fully known and will fully know. We will finally be in a state of peace and know what love really means. So with that in mind, let us go through the first few verses of our chapter again, see what lessons it has for us as we take a few more faltering steps towards the kingdom.
There are four things Jesus asks that we should look out for, and we'll find them and then see what they add up to. Again, Jesus said, The things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Knowing that we can repent and be forgiven tilts the balance in favour of a call to stay away from causing others to stumble. Gives us hope. We should not seduce or entrap. We should not boast about our conscience or freedoms. We should not cause others to stumble by encouraging them more directly to do what they think is wrong. We should not teach wrong doctrines, getting on our hobby horses. In other words, our first call is as little children to live blamelessly. Number one. In verse 2 we read, verse 4, If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times a day, and seven times come back to you, saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Part of the holiness of Jesus was that he could expose and rebuke sin while leading the sinner to repentance by forgiveness. Turning to the woman, he said, Your sins are forgiven. I tell you, because her many sins have been forgiven, she has loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. When we pass judgment on others in our hearts, when we harbour disdain or criticism or disgust, we are woefully missing the mark. It's rather interesting to note that although we know judging others is wrong, after all, Paul says he doesn't even judge himself, we quickly forgive ourselves for doing it. It's one of those sins we don't really consider a sin, not really. After all, we can sometimes clearly see when someone is doing wrong. But judgment isn't the point. Yes, we can see where people are going wrong, and a rebuke or gentle correction is fine. Judgment isn't. We are asked to confess our sins to each other, after all, not hide them. Have we ever felt able to try that? There's so much power in it. Allowing a brother or a sister that you trust not to be judgmental, to know the worst things about you, things that you are undoubtedly ashamed of, makes you feel extremely vulnerable. But vulnerability engenders trust, mutual trust. Since you don't judge the other, they feel able to tell you about the things they have done. You can help them forgive themselves, often a very hard thing to do. And you can restore them. Because you are still there afterwards, still their brother and sister, despite knowing their failures, because you are still prepared to break bread with them, this creates and maintains humility. And humility is something we all need more of. If anyone has anything they need to talk over in brotherly love, with a view to becoming more Christ-like, I'm here just saying. In contrast to all of this, sin plus judgment and punishment, is a zero-sum game. When it's over, nothing positive has been achieved. But forgiveness is life-giving. Forgiveness is a lifeline made of three strands, patience, kindness and faithfulness. And it combines to encourage love 
It reaches back into the past and cleanses both it and the future. So the second lesson from Jesus is that to forgive because it leads others out of sin. In reply to Jesus' call to forgive others, the apostles said to him, Lord, increase our faith. In Israel at the time, Jewish religious leaders lauded it over the laity. They didn't associate with those they deemed sinners. They kept their distance from those who had diseases. They were controlling, they were lauded it over people, and they benefited financially and socially from their position as spiritual leaders. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? see that a lot out there. As for those who most needed to be taught the law, well, the leaders were nowhere to be seen. They wouldn't sully themselves by associating with such people. So let's try a thought experiment now. How would we cope today here where a bunch of homeless people or prostitutes to walk in right now? How would we feel? I don't think we'd cope very well. I know I wouldn't. It would take us time to adjust to that. But we would know it was the right thing and we would know what the right thing was to do. This is what the apostles were feeling. Before Jesus, their only example was the Jewish leaders they'd seen around us. Jesus had chosen those people as his followers, as his disciples, with no social standing. So you'd think they'd have a head start. But even though they spent months and months with Jesus... It hadn't had the effect it could have done. Only just before our chapter, they'd been asking who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They'd even sent their mothers to ask if they could sit on the left and right of Jesus. They just hadn't understood. (laughs) They thought maybe Jesus was like the other leaders. They felt privileged and it was making them proud. Add to this that they had been given the ability to heal diseases and they had gone out alone or two by two to do it. Just shut your eyes for a moment and let's imagine that we here today were split into twos and we went out right now into Southampton, sent perhaps by Jesus himself. Maybe he could appear right now and give us that mission. Then he would give us power and that we find ourselves standing in the high street. So first of all, standing there as people milling past, wanting to go shopping, do you have the confidence to say anything? You know, what do you do? Where do you go? Do you, you see somebody who's suffering perhaps from, from alcoholism? Are they your first? Do you heal them first? What do you say to them? Imagine, though, that you found somebody in real need and you plucked up the courage to ask them if they wanted to be healed in the name of Jesus. Well, if they'd heard of Jesus, they might have a mixed reaction. But imagine for a moment that they, they'd been suffering for many years and that they'd had no opportunity to meet anybody who shared their love of Jesus. Perhaps they'd just been alone all those years and had never been, able, never been approached by anyone with the truth. And so their response is, yes, please. Now, having the power to do that... You heal them in Jesus' name. And the joy on their face and your own sense of joy and the commotion that would, have been, that would be caused by that would bring people to you, people that didn't believe. Perhaps crowds of people would join you. 
Perhaps they would walk with you, wondering who you'd find next to heal. This is what was happening to the disciples. Perhaps the police would join you, wondering what this crowd was. These days the police are very cautious of crowds, aren't they? So imagine then that this had been going on for days and that you'd healed hundreds of people and that thousands had followed you. You know, you work from the earliest time in the morning because you're so enthusiastic to heal people until the very late at night when you finally collapse and you reflect with each other in private, talking over what had just happened. You'd been given the power over death itself. Just imagine what attitude, what influence this would have had on those disciples. How could they have contained this new set of emotions? What would it have been doing to them? They would have asked themselves what their future would be. Well, it would be bright. You personally know the Christ of God. He chose you out of everyone. You've seen his power and listened to his words on countless occasions And now you're expecting him to be king any time now. Your future will be about rulership and authority and power and greatness and respect and personal fame and pride. And he'd given you the power already. We're only human, brothers and sisters. And this is the background to Judas, a man like any other, who couldn't cope with the privilege and didn't admit his feelings to his other brothers, didn't get help. We're so privileged It's something to sit by ourselves and think on for a good while. If if we please God with our faith, the reward is joint kingship with Christ and his kingdom, assisting the world to know God. You and I will be ambassadors on behalf of the living God. We are now. We all need more faith. If Jesus were here now, Would he say to us, the way he said to all of his disciples so many times, O ye of little faith, we hang our heads. Lord God of the universe, help us with our faith. So that's the third lesson. We need God's help to live according to his calling. Suppose one of you has a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come now and sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. We are the slaves, not in the colonial sense of being sold against our will, but in the Greco-Roman sense of being respected members of the family with responsibility. We have a place in the home, don't we? We have guarantees of employment. We are an honoured, it's an honoured position that we occupy, though we are a slave. We are all those servants. We are ploughing and not looking back. We're looking after the sheep, especially the lost sheep, as Jesus did. We're not those with long robes or the chief seats or the places of honour at feasts or greetings in the marketplace. We are nobodies. Our status is not of the master, but through him we can join in his honour, as we read the last verse of Proverbs 3. We're wise, we will receive honour.
provided the relationship holds. Even if we're to do all that's required of us, even if we deny ourselves and put God first, seek the kingdom first and place the truth above all our aspirations in life, we're still only doing what is expected of us as slaves. We must not let a sense of our spiritual superiority go to our heads. Like alcohol, pride is intoxicating and it's the enemy of true progress. And that's lesson number four. We must not build a name for ourselves. We hear echoes of Genesis there, but instead we must be building God's name. So those four lessons again. We must live blamelessly, not leading others into sin. We must forgive because it leads others out of sin. We must do all knowing that it's only through God that we're able to achieve the things he's asked us to do. And we must reject building a name for ourselves. We must do it for God's name. So when Jesus walked around and chose the disciples, 11 of them were from an unimportant place called Galilee and Nathaniel was from nearby Cana. So a question occurs, how come? After all, atheists like to tease us Christians, saying that we're only Christians and not Buddhists or Muslims because of where we grew up. We grew up in the West. But here is Jesus, who apparently walked, down, walked around in one small, nondescript location and chose 12 nobodies to become those who would take his message to the world and have honoured positions in the kingdom, some of whom were his relatives. So on what basis did Jesus choose them? Were they just people who happened, he happened to see, who lived nearby? Well, he spent the whole night in prayer to God before choosing them. And maybe we will know what the contents of that prayer uh, was one day. But why us, brothers and sisters? Who are we? Have we been called to preach like they did? Have we been given power over disease and death? Are we destined to suffer terribly and die for Christ the way they did? Who are we? Of what worth? Will we be the authors of a new New Testament, sharing our life stories? Are we to build a new church? Well, we don't know, but maybe. After all, what's for certain is that we will be in the kingdom, in God's mercy, if we maintain our faith. And there we will indeed teach people about God, share our life stories. What's for certain, though, is we're not up to this task of stepping up the way the disciples did without God's help. So I'm going to recap some of those lessons and some of those points and draw out what we can get from them. So we, we need God's help, don't we? Our calling isn't just to mind our own business and not share the truth. Our calling surely is to openly acknowledge and, and allow our light to, to shine. So Jesus replied to his disciples when they asked for more faith, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Jesus is telling them that, yes, they could do great things if they allowed the seed which he had planted in them to grow. God didn't plant the seed of truth in us so that it would die, 
Although if you're like me, you probably feel there have been seasons in your lives where our hearts have been stony or when we've allowed weeds to grow around and, and choke God's purpose for us. God planted the seed in our hearts so that if we take care to water uh, that seed, it will grow. We must walk away from sin. We must avoid trouble and temptation and strengthen our family ties and learn humility. If we do those things, the seed will grow. He intends that seed to grow. God is the sunlight in our lives that shines on the leaves, on those new leaves that we find growing. But before that even happens, there's life in the seed itself that God has put there that gets it up out of the ground. It's virtually nothing that we do except a little bit of weeding and making sure our hearts are soft that assists that growing. So what is there in our lives? What are the weeds in our lives that we know is choking that growth? If we intend to live lives of meaning and purpose, we have to get rid of what's strangling our growth. What are we holding on to that our jealous God wants us to let go of? What are we knowingly, how are we knowingly hampering our growth in the face of a jealous and loving God? Because whatever those things are, it's time to let them go. Probably won't take you more than 10 seconds, take, took me a second, to, for my conscience to let me know of one thing that I could get rid of, an excise from my life. So let's be brave today to get rid of, to make a decision to get rid of one of those things. Let's go home and take the first opportunity to remove that temptation or that habit. Let's go home and pray about it and then do it. And thank God for Luke 17. Increase our faith, Lord. Or else how can we lead the life you've called us to lead? What meaning does the breaking of bread have unless we're actively rooting out that which is in opposition to God? We will never in this way become right with God. But we will be denying ourselves. We will be getting ready to be used, ready and willing. What could be more pleasing to God? Be holy as I am holy. We will be emptying ourselves of one more thing, denying ourselves of doing that thing we know is against God. And we'll be one more step to be willing instruments of righteousness. So all of this comes under the bracket of humility, doesn't it? But who can live like this? Who can live up to those four points of living blamelessly, of consistently and repeatedly forgiving others, of denying our pride and accepting that we're only able to do these things with God's help, and finally rejecting a name for ourselves as God begins to use us? Who can do all these things? It's a hard life that we're called to live, but it has to be hard for us. Think how hard it is for Jesus now watching our lives. It's not time for him to come back yet, and so he has to watch us failing sometimes. Very hard for him to do that. We remember how when Stephen was stoned, it says that Jesus was standing at the right hand of God, we know that he cares, as it were, he got up from his throne to 
look at Stephen at that point. Let's live as he wants us to live. Let's not keep our problems to ourselves. Let's not fall into the Judas trap of just pretending, going along with things, whilst having these feelings inside us. There's no need. We're in a family, many of whom would love to hear our spiritual problems and find ways to restore us. And with God, it's entirely possible to live that life of rejection of what will cause ourselves or others to sin. It's entirely possible to live a life of repeated forgiveness and generosity and kindness towards those that sin against us, listening to our brothers and sisters and restoring them in love and patience. It's entirely possible to accept our weakness and accept that when we're holy and empty ourselves and welcome God's Spirit into our lives, we can live according to his purpose without being spiritually proud. There is a temptation that as we begin to empty ourselves and be used by God, that it will go to our heads. Remember the disciples managing to heal all these people. We are, after all, extremely privileged. We are, after all, chosen. We are, if we let the Spirit word dwell in us richly, people that are able to make the biggest difference in other people's lives. We're not doctors, we're not politicians, we're not great leaders, but we are, you and I, able to make the biggest difference in people's lives. We do have the power of life and death. The reason why our lives have to be hard and that we're called to live a life that is hard is that our pride has to be destroyed. We have to suffer for having a gospel hope that to most people sounds foolish. We have to feel shame at the thought of opening up and being seen to be Christ outwardly. And we have to learn how to reject that shame. It's also why the disciples had to be humiliated when their king and leader, and the one that they were hoping would give them great honours, died suddenly. It's why if we felt humbled as we compare ourselves to the example we've seen in Luke 17, it's why that's a good thing. We must all be humbled because we must all learn obedience just like Jesus did. Humiliation comes before exaltation. So today, looking at what Jesus has done for us, let's honour his sacrifice by picking ourselves up and living blamelessly renewing our efforts to forgive others as we've been forgiven, asking God for more faith, praying without giving up, and doing it all for God's glory. Love overlooks faults, and we know that God is love. The living God, a God so holy that we cannot see him and live, is nevertheless pleased with us when we just try to become like him. He overlooks our faults because he wants us to succeed. He's finding our innocency. It doesn't matter that we fail. So let's renew our determination as we don't have much time. I'm going to read now from the second of Peter chapter 3. And this marries up with the end of Luke 17. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. 
That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawlessness and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. My dear brothers and sisters, the message today is that it matters that we realise how privileged we are, that despite how hard it is, we carry on perplexed sometimes, tears in our eyes sometimes, imperfectly, because it isn't about us or our failure. We do all of this for the glory of the Father and for Jesus Christ, who gave so much for us.